This, this afternoon, we leave the woman at the well, now for really the last time. We will encounter her mentioned later in this fourth chapter, but this is really the moment when she recedes into the background. I think it's important before we begin, though, to recognize that this woman has been brought to us, just as Nicodemus was by the inspired evangelist, to underscore for us one basic point. It's the point that was made at the end of chapter 2, where there we're told that Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. It's perhaps often overlooked, but in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we have evidences, so many vignettes of the truth of that statement. In other words, we find here in chapter 3, as we do in chapter 4, that Christ's ministry is a soul-penetrating ministry. His cuts through the veneer, through the facade that sinners might put up before him, and he sees what really is in the breast of those with whom he has to do. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we see illustrations of that fact. But friend, it's important for us to remember that that these pictures that we receive from the inspired evangelists, they're they're not there merely to satisfy some kind of historical curiosity. The purpose of this is to show us how the living Christ works today. Friend, make no mistake, his ministry is just as soul searching, just as heart penetrating, as we see in these two illustrations. As we come to this text, then, friend, it's our earnest desire that we would know that ourselves. We are here looking at something that we should be praying that God would work in ourselves, even on a morning such as this. That we would know what it is for Christ to search us, to know us, and also to reveal himself to us in greater ways. As we come to this text again, looking at this moment with the woman at the well for the last time, I do think it's right for us to make some basic comparisons with what we saw in chapter 3. Again, those two pictures that we receive, one, the conversation of Christ with the Pharisee, the other, with Christ with the woman of Samaria, they do have quite a lot in common. Both, of course, come to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Both demonstrate that they have some kind of knowledge of the truth, albeit inadequate. And both come at the end to have Christ revealed to them in a greater way than they would have expected. But there are dissimilarities as well, and those I think we ought to keep before us, especially this morning. First of all, I want you to notice the time. Nicodemus, that Pharisee, brother of the famed historian Josephus, a powerful Jew in Jerusalem, comes to Jesus after the cleansing of the temple, but he comes at night. The meeting must be clandestine because of the fear of the Jews. His reputation he would not suffer to be tarnished by speaking with Christ. So he comes at the night. The woman speaks with Jesus because she is publicly an outcast. The sixth hour of the day. When no one else would draw water, she is there and she is there alone. And yet, 
Though she's a scandalous woman, in the middle of the day, Christ engages her in conversation. Unmoved, as it were, by by even the shock that would be registered in his disciples, that he would speak with her in broad daylight. The second point of dissimilarity that you see here as well is that, that these are two very different people. The woman at the well is a notoriously wicked woman. That's why she's a public outcast. That's why she's treated as she is, even among Samaritans. Her sin, as it were, is written as a scarlet letter. And then you have the Pharisee. A man, again, as we see so many times in the Gospels, who could be described as one who was ex- whose exterior was cleaned. Impeccable. A man who even came to Jesus and said, Surely we believe that you are a prophet. Impeccable seemingly in profession and in life. But that third point of dissimilarity is the most important one. Because when we leave John 3, you recognize that we don't see any reason to believe that Nicodemus is converted. No mention of Nicodemus' reply after Christ gives to him that, that wonderful monologue that reveals the glory of Christ, the love of God, and his saving work. No word of Nicodemus' faith. No record of what Nicodemus does with that record. But what we do have in John 4 is a picture of the woman's response to all that she's received from Christ. In the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, we find a believer. We find one who who truly does exercise faith in the one with whom she conversed. We see that, of course, in verse 29. And we should not overlook this fact, that in that verse you, in fact, do find a confession of faith. Where there she says to her countrymen, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? It's that last question that's so powerful. In the original, it's so emphatic as well, because here the idea is, who else could be the Christ but He? Who else could be the one who is promised in the prophets, but the one who now sits at that well, with whom I have been conversing in broad daylight? Who else could be Christ but Him? And then, friend, you recognize that not only does she see something of Christ here, not only is she professing that this one whom she has seen is in fact the Lord's Messiah, she also says here something about herself. She knows him to be such because she has felt the very thing that John told us was true at the end of John 2. He needed no man to testify what was in the heart of man. This Christ told her all things, as she says there, that ever I did. It was the heart-piercing and heart-searching ministry that that here the woman here exalts and, and demonstrates to be an evidence of Christ's Messiahship. This must be the Christ because he has cut through the exterior, penetrated the recesses of the soul. This must be he. Now friend, as we look at this woman as a believer, as we must, 
I want you to notice that this shows us one thing. It shows us preeminently that believers seek Christ's advancement in their abasement. Believers seek Christ's advancement in their abasement. And I want us to see that as we work through this text briefly this this afternoon. I want us to look, first of all, at the alteration that we can see in this woman, the abasement that we find here described for us, and the advancement that this woman seeks. So take, first of all, the alteration. And friend, it's a staggering alteration at that. Just recall for a moment the fact that, that John here gives us a detail that we could quickly overlook. He says, as soon as the disciples come, in verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. Why is that striking? It's striking because if you remember all that's gone before, the woman came to the well with one purpose. And in fact, as Christ is speaking to her about living water as a spiritual metaphor, her mind is still fixed, albeit scoffingly, but still fixed on the water that she would draw from that well. But in verse 28, John, the inspired historian, gives us this detail that she leaves her water pot And friend, that epitomizes symbolically something that has really changed in the woman. It's a symbol of what has gone on in this woman's mind and her heart. I mean, think about what she was previously. She continued to scoff at Christ. How is it then, whenever Christ, wearied and thirsty, asks of her a drink, her only response to this is, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me? I want you to notice, friend, that she never gives Christ a drink of water in this entire narrative. She scoffs. Then, after this refusal, and after this clear testimony to her animosity, she says, then, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with after Christ offers her living water. And what you see here is she's calling to attention something that's very obvious. He has no water pot, so he asks of her. But you recognize, friend, that this is mocking. You're offering me living water, but you can't even draw water from the well upon which you sit. And then it goes a step further. Now, incredulous, she goes and she says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Are you greater than Jacob, who could dig this well and draw water from it when you yourself have nothing to draw from and require my water pot to drink? All of this, friend, is a picture of incredulity, a picture of utter indignance. And then, friend, I want you to recognize that this woman, this woman is a Samaritan and is possessed of a certain self-righteousness as well. How is it that thou, being a Jew, a Jew, not a Samaritan, a Jew who, according to the Samaritans, had defected from the true worship of God. That's right, friend. It's important for us to remember in this text that the Samaritans believed that the Jews were the great liberals of their day. That the Jews were the ones who had left the true worship of God. That the Jews were the ones who had apostatized. Uh, Perhaps you recall several weeks ago that the Samaritans believed that, that religion was corrupted by the judge and high priest Eli. Whenever Eli moved the worship of God to Shiloh, they said that that in of itself was an act of defection. And so after that, all that followed afterward in Judaism was really an error. 
And so they rejected the prophets, all of them, to the exclusion of none. When she says that you are a Jew, you need to recognize that from a Samaritan, that was indeed an insult. When she said that you were a Jew, and that she is Samaritan, she would describe herself as one who is part of true Israel, who was the true and the faithful spiritual and ethnic inheritance of the faith of Jehovah. Whenever she called Jacob her father, she meant that in a way that she and other Samaritans would exclude the Jews. Now that's what she was previously. What is she now? I want you to notice this. First of all, staggeringly, after the Lord exposes her sin, she says to him, Thou art a prophet. I want you to notice that she ties this revelation to something miraculous. She recognizes this knowledge that Christ has must be from God. But then secondly, quite strikingly, though a Samaritan and though she would have been trained to reject all of the prophets after Eli, there's some reverence for the prophetic office detectable in this. Thou art a prophet, she says. But then she goes a step further. She says, after saying that she perceives him a prophet, she says, I know that Messiah cometh. Now, if you were with us before, you remember that that's quite a staggering thing for a Samaritan to say as well. They expected one who was to come, but they would never have called him Messiah. Remember, rejecting the prophets, they would have gone only back to the first five books of Moses, and there, Christ is not called Messiah. That would come in the prophets and the Psalms as well. But she calls him Messiah. This woman, though a Samaritan, is conversant with the scriptures beyond the canon that her own community would have allowed. But what you recognize, especially, friend, here is that she, in this moment, and Christ detects this, she recognizes, unlike Nicodemus before her, that this Jesus is more than a prophet. This Jesus is more than a prophet. So much so, friend, that she comes to the point where she goes to her countrymen and says, this must be Christ. Who else could be Christ but he? It's a striking alteration, isn't it? Uh, From scoffing, unbelief, incredulity, and even to an extent self-righteousness, now to a settled believer who longs above all things that her countrymen would come and see him, who is indeed the Lord's Messiah. As you look at this text, friend, you you and I have to see here that souls must be brought to revere Christ and to abase self. This woman was not found in such a condition. She was brought to it by divine grace. And the reason why all souls must, have to, must go through that, that alteration is because there is that natural enmity which is in every breast. There is none that seeketh after God. And friend, you recognize that in order for souls really to adore Christ, friend, this alteration is altogether necessary because if there is no altar, if there is no change, Well, friend, what you find in the first century when the Pharisees are confronted with his ministry, you see that reenacted in every breast. 
who encounters the Christ, this Christ today. You remember how Christ conveys that idea to us in Mark 12. Speaking there in parable, he says, Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them in the vineyard, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. I think, friend, we often forget that the hatred and the malice that Christ experienced in the first century is naturally in your breast and in mine. It's naturally in your breast and in mine. And unless there is a work of grace, friend, you too would have cried, crucify him, crucify him. No, the change is necessary. And we see that in this woman. I want you to notice, friend, that as Christ exposes this woman to herself, he says, thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And, and there he is showing also another reason why this alteration needs to occur. I, I want you to recognize, friend, that this is a woman, as we said before, who has tried well above and beyond what others might have to find satisfaction in a husband. Again, according to rabbinic tradition that would have also been shared by the Samaritans, it would have been very much not expected that a woman even widowed twice to have married a third, let alone a fourth or a fifth. And yet this woman marries five times. And then, friend, whether divorced or widowed, it doesn't matter, she then proceeds to find a relationship outside of marriage. Christ describes her as having a man who is not yet her husband or is not her husband. For what you see here is a woman who is restless. We already saw this before, but, but you see that this also wonderfully depicts the human condition. Not only is there this natural hatred for God and so an animosity toward Christ, but for there's this earnest desire in the heart of men to find satisfaction in the creature. There's this earnest desire to find something that only God can give among creatures in sin. 1 Timothy 5 describes it well. Speaking of the foolish woman, he says, She that liveth in pleasure, that is, liveth in delicacy, is dead while she liveth. They who devote themselves to finding satisfaction, to finding that kind of living water, so to speak, in the creature, the apostle says they're dead while they live. And friend, this is precisely what must be changed in order for us to exalt in Christ. You remember in Isaiah 55, that wonderful call of the gospel. You remember how that call comes to us. He says, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Friend, the prophet comes to men and it says, I see what you're doing. After, after the prophet has tendered to them nothing less than the offer of free grace, it's as though in the second verse of Isaiah 55 that the prophet sees that they're reaching into their coats to pull out their money bags, to buy something from someone else. Friend, the human condition is such that unless there is an alteration like the woman at the well, we will seek satisfaction in the creature, not in Christ. The alteration is then absolutely necessary. 
our enmity toward God and our idolizing the creature demands it. But how is this brought about? Friend, I want you to notice in this text we have a wonderful picture of how the Lord does this. First of all, this woman is met with, with patience on Christ's part. Time and time again, her scoffs are simply ignored. But at last, when her scoffing leads to a point where Christ may, may really draw her in, allow her to see the living water that is there being offered, the first thing he does is he draws attention to her sin. Friend, this is crucial. He needs to show this woman that in her own life, her restless soul has not yet, nor would it ever find satisfaction unless she closed with these offers of mercy. And this, this tacit condemnation of her sin, this, expose, this exposure that Christ gives to her, friend, is to show her Indeed, that she has been chasing broken cisterns. And friends, so it is with all souls. You and I will not see Christ as we ought to unless you and I have been exposed by him. There will be no alteration, really. Friend, unless that alteration includes with it this exposure. Where you and I do find our enmity exposed. And our idolization of the creature they declared. Sin, says the apostle, by the commandment came to him that it might become exceeding sinful. There, friend, when Christ takes up the law of God and applies it to the soul, there, friend, you have the Lord working with the soul to show that indeed there is sin to be found. But secondly, friend, you find here as well that this text preeminently, is an offer of grace. While he does expose to her her sin, and all of it is couched in the language of his offer. I said to you last Lord's Day evening, that conscience has one work, and that is to lay us all, all under the condemnation of the law. The word of God has another end. While it is to stop all mouths, that all might justify God's judgment, it is always, friend, a special revelation is an act of the covenant of grace. It is to summon men to close with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is in this text. The purpose of Christ here is not to lead the woman to despair under the law, but that she might close with this offer of living water. Now, friend, what you see here then is a picture of a true encounter with Christ in which her disposition is altered and friend, it's important to note that in this text, the, the inspired historian is showing us a vignette. Just an image of what is to take place in your soul and in mine when we meet with him. And I don't care. I don't care what, what way you might appear before me or before the world. What matters, friend, is this question. Have you undergone this kind of alteration yourself? Do you know what it is, friend, to have, to have your heart so exposed by Christ that, that you see 
the sinfulness of sin in a greater degree than, than any men could, than any men could see in yourself, rather. Friend, do you see the root of iniquity within? And also, as we'll see in a moment, friend, do you see also the glory of Christ? You've not met with Christ, friend, unless you've seen this. Now that is the alteration that we find in the text. The second thing we see here is an abasement. Now, what we find here in the words of this woman as she goes to her countrymen is this, that that this one told me all things that ever I did. We could quickly read over that, but I want you to recognize, friend, that, that in one sense, and I mean in an absolute or a literal sense, that's not true, is it? In one sense, friend, all that Christ has given to us according to what we have before us is, is just that she was a woman who was habitually, habitually engaged in adultery. So how is this true? Now, friend, to understand that or to perhaps answer that question, we need to remind ourselves who this woman is. As we said before, the fact that she's, draw, she's drawing water from the well alone and on the sixth hour indicates that she was an outcast among her own countrymen. We know then that this is a woman who is notoriously wicked. She's a marked woman in her own society. So you could imagine, friend, that, that after hearing the words from this woman, that, that perhaps some of her some of her fellow Samaritans might have said, well, well, who doesn't know? Who doesn't know what you've done? But I want you to notice, friend, that in this text there's something here that's quite striking. She doesn't simply say that he told me things that I did. He told me all. And according to the response we find in verse 30, the countrymen there her countrymen seem to understand what she's meaning. What she's saying here, friend, you ought to understand, is she's saying that Christ has exposed here the root and the heart of my sin. He's cut to the very principle of my life, the basis for which I've done all things heretofore. What you see here, friend, staggeringly, is that this is the point of her emphasis. It's remarkable because up to this point, Christ has revealed to her so many things. He told her about the great alterations that were to occur in religion. That the worship of God would no longer be geographically circumscribed and that it would be promiscuously throughout the world. That that, that the new covenant administration would be inaugurated shortly. And and friend, that the old old fuse between Samaritans and Jews would now become a non-issue. She could have emphasized any of those quite significant, profound points, but she doesn't. That which she emphasizes above all is that Christ here has cut to the heart of her life and to her sin. The striking friend here is that she is willing at this moment to set her abasement before her fellow countrymen. She's willing for this to be the point of emphasis and the point of focus even as she invites men to come to Christ. In other words, friends, she doesn't hide behind her sin. This meeting that she's had with Christ has brought her a self-abasement that she's content to lay low under. 
In a striking friend in the scriptures, this is habitually the case. Those who know Christ best are pleased. Pleased even to emphasize their lowliness. Pleased to call attention to their unworthiness. Pleased to be abased that he might be exalted. Mary calls herself the handmaid of the Lord. The word there in the original is doula. And the sense there is that she is a slave of slaves. She gives herself the absolute lowest position. Gives herself a title that no one in her day would have been pleased to take. She gives herself this title willingly, abased before the Lord. Paul calls himself less than the least of all saints. Less than the least of all of God's people. And then you find, of course, that he says as well that in his flesh dwelleth no good thing. For in all of these texts are, really are the, same, are the same tone that you have in this woman. She's willing for her countrymen to be reminded of her sin. Just that Christ would be exalted. So we find a woman abased and willingly so. The thirdly and finally as we close we see an advancement. She calls to them, come see, is not this the Christ? There's something striking in this. She does not say go. This is quite important. The word in the original is dute. That is go. That is, that is not go. That is come with me. Her intent, friend, this is quite staggering, is that she would go back to Christ at the well. And she would bring with her her fellow Samaritans. It's striking, friend. And then it's striking as well because, again, she gives him the highest, highest name. Is not this the Christ? Who else could be the promised Messiah but he? Friend, what's striking here is, is a staggering alteration as well. Remember it, interestingly, she, she goes to Christ after he offers her that living water. And she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? And now she says, this is the Lord's Messiah. She knows with whom she's speaking. But what do we see here? Well, friend, we see here an earnest desire to see Christ's name advanced. But How? Calvin very helpfully puts it this way to us. He says, we see that the woman, kindled by a holy zeal, does not spare herself or her reputation to magnify the name of Christ. She does not scruple to relate the disgraceful passages of her life, just that those Samaritans would come with her to see him. From what you see here is a woman who reveres the Lord, and is quite pleased that he only would be exalted and she abased. It's quite a striking picture, friend, when we leave that picture we receive of John the Baptist at the end of John 3. He must increase, but I must decrease. Staggeringly, friend, not in Nicodemus, but in this scandalous Samaritan woman. You see that very much the same in her own breast. 
Her longing, friend, is that, as, as again Kelvin very helpfully puts it to us, that she would just magnify the name of Christ even as she calls attention to her own sin and the fact that it was exposed by him. It's the very same sentiment that we read in Philippians 3. The apostle there goes at length to show that according to the law, as a Pharisee, he would have great grounds to boast. But the one thing, friend, that he desires above all is to lay low before him. Just to know him and to make him known is the apostle's great cry. As we close, friend, the first point of examination is a basic one. Do you know personally the soul-searching ministry? Friend, I don't know how you came in here this morning. I don't know if you came here focusing on others' sins and not yours. I don't know if under the word of God you felt that the Lord himself is the one who brings to light the very root of iniquity within But friend, this text reminds us that a true encounter with the living Christ must include that. His soul-piercing ministry must be known if you are to know Christ at all. That's why the holiest men, friend, the holiest people, will most long, above all, that men would hear their complaints against their own sin, would exalt Christ even as they abase themselves. And so, friend, have you known this soul-piercing ministry that produces that effect? The second question, of course, is are you content for his advance, even, even at the expense of your own abasement, reputation, self-glorying? Is it just his name, friend, that you long to see revered? Are you quite content, friend, to leave? to leave all reputation and worldly glory behind, just that his name would be lifted high. This woman had an encounter with the living Christ. It was not purely external, that it produced a change. And in that change, this was found in her. Just his name, his fame, his exaltation was what she craved. But connected to that, friend, is another question. In this passage, you find a woman who has evidently drawn from the living water offered to her. And what does that produce in her? It produces in her a desire to see her countrymen saved. It's a staggering thing because, friend, these are the same people who had quite clearly ostracized her from their company. These are a people who know her sin and who treat her accordingly. And yet the very first thing that she does, seemingly mindless with regard to her own water pot, the errand that she initially had by bringing her to the well, she goes to her very enemies. And she pleads with them to come and to draw from this well. She pleads with them to come with her and to see this Christ. And so, friend, the question is, do you have such a desire yourself? If this place was filled with drug addicts, harlots, people who are the outcasts of society, 
Friend, would it thrill your soul to see them seeking the living Christ? If our congregation became known as a congregation filled with those, would you exalt in him? Spurgeon put it this way. If you have no desire for others to be saved, you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. This woman clearly evidences that by drawing from this water, she longed that others would as well. The comfort from this text, friend, is it's there before us. It's really been facing us all the while. Christ turns to this woman and reveals himself in a more direct way than he did Nicodemus. And in fact, than he would a good many others. Very, very directly, he owns his messiahship. I that speak unto thee am he. There is something sweet, friend, in in what he says there. He says, I that speak unto thee am he. In a moment, friend, what this woman should have recognized is that Christ was pleased to be detained in conversation with her. An outcast. One who was notoriously wicked. He was willing to speak with her. What you see here, friend, is a picture that Christ delights. He delights even in the noonday, in broad daylight to reveal himself even to the most wicked of men and women. He is not contaminated by keeping company with them. His touch is a healing touch, and he is content so to heal. Friend, what you see here is that he is even pleased to reveal himself more abundantly to them than to the Pharisee in John 3. She received a more direct revelation from him from Christ than Nicodemus would for years to come. What this text shows us then, friend, is first of all an exhortation to believe. Friend, you must lay hold of this Christ. You must lay hold of him by faith as he offers himself to you this morning. And with that, you are to pray for this kind of ministry. That kind of ministry that searches the deep recesses of your heart and of mine. It exposes sin. And then, friend, a ministry that demonstrates that this living Christ is still pleased to do that work of surgery where he extracts the sin to the healing of the sinner. We're to pray for that kind of exposure and that kind of surgery that we see in this text. But that third and that final exhortation is quite straightforward. It's what we see in the woman's response to all of this. To see him exalted. Above all. Friend, let your name and my name lie in the dust and be forgotten by generations to come. Let it be our cry. And let it be our cry that his name would be lifted high. Amen.